before I preach to you this morning, I want to say something on behalf of the elders that is intended to be for the encouragement of this whole church, all of you, whether you're here today, and most of you are. I think we read out of bulletins. Uh, this past year, as you know, has presented a lot of challenges that we could never have imagined or planned for. When the pandemic hit over a year ago, we were hoping that it would be short-lived, and of course, it was not. As you know, as Christians, one of the most difficult effects of the disease was the fact that we could no longer meet together. In order to mitigate that, we, we wanted to kind of soften the impact of the lockdowns, and so we made the decision not to meet and to offer live streaming as kind of a temporary measure to continue ministering the Word of God to God's people from Calvary Bible Church at, at some level to allow them to continue having, at least in their own homes, some time of corporate worship. We all knew that this arrangement was not in keeping with the biblical command to gather as a church. The obvious truth, however, is that it is impossible to gather without gathering. Moreover, we became concerned that once people got used to having worship service in their homes, watching it on the TV, they may never come back. It's easier to sit in your jammies during worship service. It's more comfortable. And over the last couple of weeks, if we've, as we've considered how to encourage our people to return to the gathered church, we considered the possibility of discontinuing our live stream. That was seriously on the table. Upon further reflection, however, we decided that to do so would put an unnecessary burden on some who really have no control over the fact that they need to be home often. And so with that in mind, I stand before you today to encourage every able-bodied member of Calvary Bible Church to return to the fellowship of Christ and his church. I'm, I'm gladdened by the fact that this statement, it appears to me as I, as I look out over this audience and imagine how many are down the hall, that, that for the most part, this, um, starting this morning apparently, is an irrelevant <laughs> statement. But I will say this, we have missed you. Those of you who are staying home, whether for good reasons or Maybe, who knows what reasons. We've missed you. You're a part of us. You're a part of our family. For some, this may be a fearful prospect. To be sure, there may still be a small amount of risk involved relative to COVID-19. But I would say to you that historically, the church of Jesus Christ around the world has often had to take risks, serious risks, worse risks, than anything we've ever experienced in order to obey the Lord by gathering with his people. And so whether you're a member of Calvary Bible Church or whether you're a member of some other church and you have decided to stay home, this is your encouragement. It's time to come home. It's time to come back to the gathered church. 
and we hope that we will see you again very soon. Now, to the word and to the testimony. Would you stand with me and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2 and follow along with me as I read verses 11 through 16. Romans chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the word who are righteous before God, but the doers of the word who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this word, and you can be seated. Let me remind you this morning that Paul is teaching us in this passage, it's all about the future day of judgment. And there is one thing that we should understand about that future day, and it is this singular statement, to whom much has been given, much will be required. To whom much has been given, much will be required. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul has been teaching us about the intricacies of our salvation. There is a sense in which the gospel is very, very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you, finish the statement, will be saved. Believe. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's all Paul said to the Philippian jailer. I'm sure when he went to his house, he explained more, but this, this is the whole record of his statement. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is a faithful statement of the gospel, an invitation at least. But behind the simplicity of this beautiful statement of, of saving faith is a vast complexity of spiritual riches and theological treasure. The book of Romans, for the most part, opens up that treasure chest. Paul begins presenting these treasures in chapter 1 when he declares in verses 16 and 17, very familiar verses, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. From there, Paul begins showing us why salvation is necessary. Namely, because every human being is a sinner by birth, and by choice. And we 
are those things apart from God's intervention, apart from God's intervention, we will ultimately experience what the Bible has always talked about from the beginning to the end, the full fury of the just and holy wrath of God. The way Paul approaches this topic by, is by revealing that, that the Gentiles are under God's wrath of abandonment for suppressing the truth about God in unrighteousness. And though they knew God by virtue of their nature as image bearers, they, de they denied God and made for themselves idols, false gods, that would allow them to do whatever they wanted to do because they were, after all, not gods. They, were, they enabled themselves to give vent to their perverted impulses and enslaving desires. That's chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, Paul starts addressing the Jews who viewed themselves as sufficiently righteous for salvation by virtue of their perceived status as sons of Abraham and recipients of the law of God given by Moses. We have this law. We have the testimony. We have the promises. We have the land. We had the Shekinah glory. We had the tabernacle. We have the temple. We have the sacrifices. We have the priests. And by their calculus, that was enough to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. But Paul wasn't buying it. He knew that the Jews were just as liable to stand before the great white throne of final judgment as any Gentile ever was. They may have had the law of God, but they weren't keeping it. And in the areas where they said they were keeping it, they weren't keeping it from the heart. Having established the fact that all people deserve the judgment of God because of sin, Paul then sets out to explain the basis of God's righteous judgment. Now, for the rest of this sermon, and we talked about this last week, you've got to keep in mind that Paul is talking about judgment, not salvation. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about salvation just to help keep things as clear as I possibly can to distinguish between what Paul is saying about justification relative to our works and justification by faith alone. We might put it in the form of a question. Upon what basis... Will God judge people in the final judgment? Upon what basis will God judge people in the final judgment? Well, in our text last week, chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, Paul explained that God will judge every person according to their what? Their works. I know it's startling. It's startling. According to their works. In chapter 4, he will show us that salvation is by faith alone. And throughout the book, as we saw last week, and I would encourage you if you weren't here last week, you've got to go back and listen to that sermon and get caught up. Otherwise, you may be confused on some things. But he will show us in the book of Romans that salvation is by faith alone. 
But here, Paul isn't talking about salvation. He's explaining what we, why we need saving faith. Why do we need salvation? He's explaining what we need saving from. Namely, the righteous and inescapable scrutiny of God leading to judgment. He knows every deed, every thought, every intention of the heart. And he knows all of those things about every man, woman, and child. When he spoke in the house in Capernaum where people would gather, and the Pharisees would often gather, it is often said that Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew what they were thinking thinking. He knew what was going on in their hearts. Every intention of the heart of every man, woman, and child is known by the Lord. And the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.27 that it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Paul is speaking about judgment. You see, beloved, everyone has an appointment with God. You have an appointment with God, but it's not on your calendar, and God hasn't told you what, when that appointment is, which would be maddening if that's from your doctor. You'll find out when you find out. <laughs> but God will determine on that day what your eternal destiny is. And that decision will be made not by your profession but by the reality of how you lived. Upon what basis will God judge people in the final judgment? Judgment, Paul says, will be based on one's works, not on his or her religious heritage. Take that, homeschoolers. All of my kids are homeschooled. Not on the basis of your national identity, as Jews or Gentiles or Africans or Europeans, New Jerseyans. Whether one is a Jew or a Gentile, the standard by which he will be judged will be, listen carefully, will be fair and just. It will be commensurate with the crime. Now, before we dive into the meat of this passage, it may be helpful to see how Paul's argument flows. The question is, what should we understand about Judgment Day? What shall we understand about Judgment Day? I refer to this as Judgment Day because look at verse 16. Paul says, on that day, God judges. There is a day. There is an appointment. There is a time. Paul's not talking about temporal judgment, which we alluded to back in chapter 1, where God gives people over to their lusts as a specific act of judgment against them. Rather, he's speaking about something even greater and more terrible than that kind of judgment. Namely, the day of final and irreversible judgment. Praise God that the temporal judgment 
that comes upon man is one that many repent of. And they repent because of the harshness, the severity of the judgment. But after this day, there will be no hope. Paul doesn't explain what that day will look like. But the Apostle John does. If you want, you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 14. Revelation 20, 11 through 14. In the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, John writes these words. Revelation 20, 11 through 14, John writes, Then I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence the earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, listen carefully, according to what they had done, not according to what they professed. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Is that shocking? Is that surprising? This is the judgment Paul is speaking of. It's the judgment of the last day, the day of the Lord, judgment day. It's also called the white throne, the great white throne judgment. By the way, no true child of God will stand at that judgment. Now, there are two important truths Paul wants us to understand about that day. First, he wants us to know something about the judge, and second, he wants us to know something about the accused. Paul is offering us here a, a brief lesson in theology, which is the study of God, and also a brief lesson in anthropology, which is the study of man. First of all, what should we know about the judge? Well, we should know some things about the judge. Whenever we read a text of Scripture, you should be thinking about him. You should ask yourself questions as you're reading the text. And the most important question that you should ask about every text of Scripture is, first of all, what does this teach me about God? What should I know about God? What is the basis in theology that brings us to a point of this particular verse? What does it imply about God? In many passages, it's a bit challenging to determine what that passage reveals or implies about God, but in our text for this morning, all we have to do is look at the first verse for this message. Verse 11, what do we learn about God? Paul tells us right out, God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. What does Paul want us to know about God the judge? Well, he wants us to know that God is just and he judges without partiality. He makes this perfectly clear. 
You don't need to know anything about ancient Greek. You don't have to buy a big, expensive Bible program. All you have to do is read the English. There is no partiality with God, or in the ESV, for God shows no partiality. He is not a respecter of persons when it comes to divine government. God has no favorites. God has no favorites. No one will receive special treatment. God will judge the Gentiles according to their works, and he will judge the Jews according to their works. Again, this whole passage is about judgment. And let me add another phrase to that. Everyone who is experiencing this judgment, everyone who will stand before God on this judgment will be lost. On that day, no one is judged according to their profession of faith, as I said. That's easy to fake. It's easy to be self-deceived. It's easy to hang all of your hope for eternal life upon your own perceived rightness with God. You won't be judged on how often you attended worship services or watched online. You're not going to be judged on your GPA at that Christian college or grade school. You're not going to be judged on years spent on the mission field or how many people were in your church that you pastored or or how many Bible verses you have memorized or how many dollars you've donated to good causes. No, everyone who stands before this judgment seat of God on the last day will be judged by their works. Why? Because of who God is. He is perfectly just and fair with every man. He is no respecter of persons. He doesn't judge more harshly those that he doesn't like or less severely with those he loves, as humans tend to do. No, in the judgment, he, he judges without partiality. Now, this is important. This is an important qualification to make because it's so difficult for humans to not show partiality. This week, my grandchildren will show up, all of them. And I like your grandkids. I love my grandkids. There will be some serious partiality happening (laughs) this week. For example, some of my kids have competed in national speech and debate tournaments. At the end of the day, the winners are determined by how judges scored each round. However, before someone can be approved to be a judge on a particular um, debate, he or she has to answer a few questions. They will show you the ballot for your judgment, but they will ask, Are you related to either of these contestants? Are either of them a part of your debate club or a part of your church? 
do you know them? If the answer is yes, you're not supposed to judge them. You know why? Because we tend to show partiality, even when we swear we won't. If you are fond of one person, you will likely score him higher. If you don't like them, for some reason, you'll tend to score them lower. And that's not fair. It is unjust. It's hard for humans to render a truly accurate judgment, but that's not true of God. He's not swayed by anyone. He's not affected by anyone. He is no respecter of persons. His judgment is impartial and based on only on the evidence and the facts of the case. By the way, the word for partiality here means to receive face. It's actually two words. Many commentators believe that the biblical authors invented this word. Partiality. To describe God. It's the picture of a criminal. It's the picture of a criminal. This, this idea of lifting face or... Um, uh, or receiving faith. It's the idea of someone coming to the, the bench of the judge and, and they begin crying and whining and, and complaining about, I didn't do it, I got framed, and, and it wasn't really me. They're weeping and declaring their innocence. He may pro protest that a guilty verdict will harm his family. You've got to pronounce me innocent or my family will be destitute or that, or that the, the reason he did the crime was because he himself had been mistreated. He's just paying it back or passing it on or I can't help myself or insanity. But the righteous judge is unmoved by the face of the accused. He will not be swayed by irrelevant appearances. Remember, man looks on the outward appearance, but God sees what? The heart. In ancient times, the goddess of justice in the Greek system was presented and still is presented at the Supreme Court and other places. She is presented as a, a woman with a bandage over her eyes, so that she cannot see the person that, that is coming before her for judgment. She carries a set of scales so that justice could be given with absolute balance and equity. And she carried a sword that had no scabbard with which she would strike down all the guilty alike. The whole picture of Lady Justice is a picture of impartial judgment. Humans have always longed for impartial judgment in the world and hardly ever get it. Even in the ancient times, in the ancient, what's called in, in Egypt, the Book of the Dead, there is a pictograph of a, of a scene in which a deceased person's heart is weighed against the feather of truth. How does this play out in Paul's argument? Well, he says in verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. What's he saying? 
It will all be fair and righteous judgment. Now I want you to take notice of Paul's change of phrase here in this verse. He says that those who sin without the law will perish. They'll perish. Again, this is judgment. He will perish without the law. But those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Notice the difference in term. First he says they will, those without the law will perish, but those who have the law will be judged. The word judged here has a, a sense of intentionality. The word perish just seems like, you know, you were, you were going over that cliff by your own inertia, and there you go. And not in this case. In this case, it's a legal declaration. It's intentional. The judge is making a decision to send you to that place of everlasting righteous punishment. Now, why do you think there's a change in the terms? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones is right, I think, when he suggests that this, this gives us a hint that the degree of punishment for those who have the law will be greater than the punishment of those who don't have the law. And this is consistent with biblical teaching. The Bible demonstrates that there is not only punishment for sin by degrees, but there, there are degrees of punishment for sin. Not everybody gets the same judgment. That wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be a righteous judgment. And you say, really? That's news to me. Can you demonstrate that in the Bible? Well, let me try. In Matthew 11, verse 20, Jesus began denouncing the cities in which most of his miracles were done, Matthew tells us, because they did not repent. And here's what Jesus said to them. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. By the way, Tyre and Sidon was a, were a couple of cities that God said would be destroyed and were. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I say to you, listen carefully to the words, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Do you hear degrees? And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be, listen carefully, more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. This is startling. Shocking. In Luke 22 47 and 48, Jesus says this, And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging, he will receive few. 
From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him will they ask all the more. Here's what Paul is saying. My dear Jewish brothers, Paul was a Jew, right? My dear Jewish brothers, we have been given so much. We were the ones who were called in Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. We were the nation of Israel to whom God, with whom God entered covenant. You were the ones that God singled out to rescue from Egypt and your oppressors. He led you through the Red Sea by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He gave you the promised land. He gave you the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices. He gave it all. And ultimately, he gave you his son. And what Paul is saying is, my dear Jewish brothers, to whom much has been given, much will be required. Notice once again, it's critical to understand that Paul is not speaking here about a person who is saved. Rather, he is speaking about how a person is judged and condemned because of their sin. And what is Paul saying about it specifically to the Jews, the moralists? Is that the way they tend to think about future judgment is mistaken. They thought about it. They thought about it in the, in the judgment that they would get special treatment because of who they were through Abraham. They thought God would overlook their sins because they lived under God's law, which made them feel more moral and more righteous than the Gentiles. But they were mistaken. The fact that God is impartial, an impartial judge means that both groups, Jews and Gentiles, will face judgment because of sin. But in that judgment, the person who has not had the benefit of knowing God's will, his law, will be judged according to his limited knowledge of God. And the person who has access to God's law will be judged according to his greater knowledge about God. More specifically, God will judge the Gentiles who did not have the law as people who didn't have the law. And he would treat the Jews, those who have God's law, as those who had more light and greater knowledge because they possessed the scriptures. That is, greater light warrants a stricter judgment. Now, you're already thinking about application, aren't you? And you should be. We can talk all day long about the Jews and how they neglected the benefits that God had given them, the spiritual benefits. Do you realize how wealthy you are in spiritual benefits? How many times have you heard the gospel? How many times have you been warned? How, how often has the word of God been preached to you? How many times have you read this book 
It sits in your lap. Not even the Jews had that. You actually have all the words of God in a book. And if it's not in a book, it's on your phone or on your Apple Watch. You can get it everywhere. And I would dare say that many of you, everybody look up here for a second. I would dare say that many of you in this building this very day have gone all week and have not opened God's book, not even once. Because it's not in your heart to do so. And if I were to say to you, would you please stand up and tell everyone these words, I love Jesus Christ with all my heart, you would be terrified and probably refuse to do it because you know it isn't true. Showing up at church on Sunday doesn't make you a child of God. Listening to sermons doesn't make you a child of God. Memorizing scripture doesn't make you a child of God. None of these things make you a child of God. You come, to become, you come into a relationship with God, justification, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's why we sang that song this morning. The implication of this passage is obvious, isn't it? The reason the gospel is necessary, again, Paul's teaching us about the gospel, and he's starting with what the gospel saves us from. The reason the gospel is necessary is because judgment day is coming. And on that day, every person will be judged with absolute justice and fairness. This is what we need to know about the judge, at least from this passage. So let's move to the second point. What what should we know about the accused? Well, I've already said a lot about the accused, but first Paul speaks of Jewish people who will stand before the judgment, and the Jews heard the word of God every day of their lives. They sang God's law. They prayed God's law. They governed their society according to God's law. They were people whose lives were built under the hearing of God's law. They even had scripture, God's law, embedded in the door frames of their house, or at least now to it. You can, you can buy them in Israel. Uh, it's called a mezuzah. And inside, there's a little box that you can put some little tiny nails in uh, to your door frame. And every time they walk through the door, they kiss their hand and touch the, the scriptures. And it doesn't win them one iota of righteousness before God. To such people, Paul, again, who was also a Jew, according to verse 13, we read this, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, don't get all hung up here on Paul's statement that the doers of the law will be justified. You have to reflect on what we learned from the previous passage last week. And so let me just treat this as it's presented here. The doers of the law are justified, not simply the hearers. Paul's thesis in 
the book of Romans is that justification is by faith alone and not by the works of the law. We demonstrated that last week with a ton of verses that you wrote down and talked about, I hope, in small group. However, the one who truly is justified will bear the fruit of his justification. If I go to the local nursery, not baby nursery, but, you know, where you buy plants, and I say, I want, I want three apple trees in my backyard. Give me, give me some saplings that I can plant in my backyard. And they say, well, they're right over there. And I go over there, and I see kind of a, a container with a root ball in it, and it's, it's got a trunk coming out, and there's little, little spriggy branches with green leaves. And the label that's attached to it says, apple tree. And I go, I love apples. <laughs> Don't send me apples, please. <laughs> love apples, right? Go home, plant them in the ground. Next spring, when they're really starting to fire up and producing fruit, prunes. It's a prune tree. But the label says apple tree. How do I know it's a prune tree? Good night, there's prunes on it. These are not apples. Beloved, so many people are telling one another, I'm a Christian. See my tag. It says Christian on it. I have declared myself to be a Christian. And the Lord says, can we look at the fruit? I don't see righteous deeds. I don't see love of Christ, love of his word, love of his church. You can call yourself an apple tree all day long. But if you don't bear fruit, apples, then you are not an apple tree. And if you don't bear righteous works, good deeds, the ones that were described last week in our previous text, and a whole lot of others that could be produced in your life, then listen carefully, you are not a Christian. You are not. You don't belong to him. You've got to be careful here to keep things separated. There is root and there is fruit. The root is justification by faith alone. That's where the life comes from. And the fruit is your righteous deeds. And God is saying through the Apostle Paul, at the judgment, it's all going to be fair and righteous. Because I'm not going to listen to your arguments about why you think you're a believer and why I should think you're a believer, I'm just going to look at the fruit. Is this an apple tree? Are there apples? Women and men who are righteous in Christ, they love God. They love the Word of God. They delight in reading it often. They love the law of God. They love the law of God. David, oh, how I love your law. David was an imperfect man, and yet God considered him righteous. They love the church. They, 
their works vindicate or prove the validity of their profession of faith, without which there is no deception with God. A good example of the kind of righteous person that Paul is talking about, or Paul alludes to here, and of course the people who are standing in, at the judgment are, are unrighteous. But for believers, we should be bearing these kinds of fruits. And an example of this is in Luke 1, 5 and 6, where we're told that Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, who were described as, as uh, followers of Christ, Jesus says this about them, or Luke says this about them, they were both righteous, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the law, of the Lord. You say, wait, wait, wait. They were perfect? Of course not. Of course they, not per- they weren't perfect. The only perfect human ever was Jesus. But you know what? Their life was full of righteous deeds as fruit that grows up out of the root of faith. Remember, Paul is talking about judgment. What matters in the judgment is not our possession of the law or lack of possession of the law. Rather, what matters is sin. Paul speaking of men who have sinned with the law and those who have sinned without the law. And so first, Paul speaks of the Jews. Second, he speaks of Gentiles, and he says this. Look at verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles... Do not, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law, the work, I'm sorry, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bearing witness, and their conflicting thoughts cause, accuse, or even Excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Again, we need to persist in remembering that Paul is speaking about judgment, the judgment of the lost. Often, the religious lost. I frequently refer to them as religious unbelievers. The Jews will receive a stricter judgment because they had the, the light and privilege of the law. They had what the Reformers called the external word. The Gentiles, however, did not have the external word. They didn't have God's word in a book. But they had the internal word. And so God says because they had the internal word, they too will be judged. Paul's focus really here, you've got to understand, if we can just step back from the book of Romans for a minute and look at it in a broader kind of way. He's writing to a church that is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And the Gentiles think they've got to shoe in the fast track. And Paul is saying, 
Don't you think it? I don't want you to go to hell. I don't want you to hear Jesus say, depart from me, you cursed ones, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He doesn't want them to hear that from the Lord, so he's telling them there is no impartiality with God. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. You will be judged along with the Gentiles, and you will be judged fairly according to your works because the fruit of your life is always an expression of your heart. So he talks about the Gentiles' conscience. By the way, science, which is in conscience, the word, science in the Latin simply means knowledge, right? The word conscience or conscience is the God-given ability to know right from wrong. So science is to know Conscience is to know what is right and what is wrong. Even without sitting under the teaching of the law. And notice verse 14. They do by nature what the law requires. When they do what the law requires, they are doing it because they were designed by God to know what is right and wrong. And we see this in... Um, passages we've already referred to, but look at verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. They have a conscience. We already saw this in chapter 1 where Paul says in verse 21, they knew God. That is, by nature, people know that there is a God and, and that we are accountable to him. Everybody knows that. You were born with that conscience. Again, chapter 1, verse 26, Paul accuses them of sinning contra natorum in the Latin, which means against nature. He didn't, have, he didn't have to have the Bible to teach you that certain things ought not to be done. It is according to nature, or in this case, against nature. Their conscience bears witness to what is right and wrong, even though they didn't have the external written word. Therefore, even they are without excuse. My friends, we are going to, if we're going to truly understand and appreciate the gospel, the first thing we need to embrace is the truth about where you stand before God. Metaphorically speaking, we are all in the Niagara River. And we're moving fast. We're heading inexorably and unprotectedly toward the Great Falls. To go over the falls is to surely die, to perish. Without exception, all people, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, churched and unchurched, slave and free, educated and uneducated, powerful, weak, rich and poor, all are hopelessly being carried in the current. All of us are in the river, but none of us got pushed in. We all jumped in of our own accord. We were warned about the danger 
But every one of us jumped in anyway. This is the nature of the sinful heart. We always want what God forbids. But soon, much sooner than we think, there will be a day of reckoning, a day of evaluation, a day of judgment. And this is why we need salvation. You will not receive this great salvation by works. You will receive it with the empty hand of faith. Nevertheless, when a person had genuinely received salvation in Jesus Christ, his life is bound to change. He will begin to bear the fruit of joyful obedience to the word of God. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. Do you claim to be a Christian? Do you claim to be a Christian? If so, what is the fruit of it? Do you love Jesus? Do you read his word for the joy of knowing God and fellowshipping with him? Do you talk about your Savior? Do you gather with the church? None of these things can save a man. But they are obvious fruit that you belong to him. Beloved, I say what I said in the beginning and what we heard from Jesus. To whom much is given, much will be required. This is not a call now for you to go out and paste fruit on your life. If there's not fruit, the only way you can have real fruit is to have real life. So start there. Start there. Come to Christ. Come to God and say, God, I have nothing to offer you but my sin. I know I'm a hypocrite. I know I've been putting this face on all this time. And I'm fearful that one day I will stand before that great white throne and I will be judged fairly and impartially. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, rescue me based on the righteous life and bloody death of Jesus Christ on my behalf. And I can tell you this, if you fix all of your hope upon him and ask, you will be received. You will not be turned away. Turned away. If you truly want him, he will receive you and rescue you from the judgment that you rightly deserve. To whom much has been given, much will be required. Let's pray. And Father, we praise you for these words of warning. This is just the beginning of Paul's gospel. We praise you, Father, that you unpacked what appeared to be a simple message so that we could see the complexity and the glory behind it and the fear. Lord, these things disturb us. This is not the kind of happy, slappy message that is being preached today elsewhere. But you warn us because you love us. I pray, Father, that we would heed the warning and stop pretending and turn to Christ in faith for the salvation that only he can provide. Lord, these things we ask in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. <laughs>